Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. In September 1968, a colleague of my father's, working for Board Falcher in New York, did me perhaps the greatest favor of my life. He brought me to my first baseball game. I was 10 years old, and a passion was born that autumn evening that has lasted me to this day. I had never experienced anything like the sensory overload that awaited me. The jostling crowds making their way into this new world cathedral. The pungent smells of hot dogs and popcorn being prepared. The dazzling emerald that grew larger in front of us as we emerged from a dark tunnel to gape at the floodlit field stretched out in front of us. And almost immediately, echoing around us, a voice for which the adjective stentorian could have been coined, a voice frequently referred to as the voice of God. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Yankee Stadium. That voice, the voice of Bob Shepard, had been a fixture in that place since 1951. His first game had also marked the debut of the great Mickey Mantle and was the final opening day of Joe DiMaggio's career. And for 56 years, until ill health forced him to step aside from the microphone in September 2007, Bob Shepard's measured tone and meticulous enunciation contributed significantly to the aura and majesty that surrounded the New York Yankees and their big ballpark in the Bronx. He was very clear, however, on the priorities and limitations of his role as a public address announcer, albeit the best-known one in America. A public address announcer, he said, should be clear, concise, correct. He should not be colourful, cute or comic. His job consisted of welcoming patrons to the ballpark, announcing the starting lineups prior to the game, and as each player came to bat, intoning his name and number. He took great pride in giving equal measure to each name, whether a majestic star or a minor player. He also made it his business to check with visitors or Yankee newcomers if he had the correct pronunciation of their names. He reveled in the ever-expanding melting pot from which the game drew its players, as first Hispanic and then Oriental names were added to his repertoire. He took particular delight in the likes of Salome Barrojas and Shigatoshi Hasagawa. On the other hand, he maintained that Anglo-Saxon names are not very euphonious. What can I do with Steve Sachs? What can I do with Mickey Klotz? His visits to the clubhouse to check a pronunciation were legendary. Pitcher Mike Musina was asked if it was Musina or Musina. Stunned, he replied, whichever you like. Shepard retorted, it's not what I like, young man. It's your name. Though he was fond of pointing out that most men go to work, but I go to a game, nonetheless, part of his routine was his meticulous preparation at the end of every contest, which allowed him, even at an advanced age, to make a speedy exit, thus allowing him to beat the crowds on his way home to Baldwin, New Jersey. For his other life was, if anything, more important to Bob Shepherd, A devoted family man, 
professor of speech at his alma mater, St. John's University in New York, a devout Catholic who served as lector, not only in his own parish, but also, when the Yankees had a Sunday home game, in a makeshift chapel underneath the stands, where the congregation consisted of ushers, vendors, reporters, and coaches and players from the Yankees and their opponents. He never retired and cherished the hope that his health would allow him to return, especially when his Yankee Stadium closed at the end of the 2008 season to be replaced by a lavish, updated replica across the street. Bob recorded the Yankee lineup for the final game at the old place, as well as a message for the fans which was accorded one of the biggest ovations on an emotional last night. And there was even more emotion in Yankee hearts like mine when news came through on Sunday, July 11th, 2010, that Bob Shepard had passed away three months short of his 100th birthday. Although that was ten years ago, his voice still opens the broadcast of every Yankee game. In the months and years after 9-11, a feature of all significant Yankee contests was a stirring rendition of God Bless America by the Irish tenor Ronan Tynan. Shepard, mindful of Tynan's medical qualification, in addition to his singing prowess, would always refer in his introduction to Dr. Tynan. Ronan Tynan returned the favour at Bob's funeral by singing On Eagle's Wings and Panis Angelicus. On the day of his father's death, Paul Shepard said, If you're lucky enough to go to heaven, you'll be greeted by a voice saying, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to heaven. In honor of the servicemen and women stationed around the globe, Dr. Tynan will now sing God Bless America. While the storm clouds gather far across the sea, At one stage, during a 5K restriction, I was on a Zoom meeting with a women's group in Donegal. During the conversation, one woman said, I can't wait until I'm able to go home. There was a silence for a moment, as those who knew her for years looked at the screen. If we'd been in a room together, everyone would have been staring at her. So she laughed and said, I know this is home, but I mean... I want to go home, home, to Belfast. She had been living for over 40 years in Donegal, but still, there was a yearning to go to her home place, or as she called it, home, home. I understood what she was saying. In a time of uncertainty, she missed her childhood place, where her growing memories began. After she spoke, each woman, in turn, instinctively spoke about what home home meant to them. There is a great gift in having had a place and people that gave a warm grounding to our lives. For me, home is definitely where we live in Donegal. I've said often, especially after 2020, that if I didn't live in Donegal, I would want to live in Donegal. During my childhood, 
we lived in a few different places. But home home, for me, is a two-story house on Bonneview Avenue outside Cleveland, Ohio. White cladding, a front porch, basement and attic spaces. The distinct smells, yeast bread baking, cinnamon toast, meatloaf. The music, Engelbert Humperdinck, the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem, Johnny Cash, Glen Campbell. The sound of a cargo train on the railway tracks further up our road, or cars driving on the brick cobbled street. My mother reading our nighttime stories, my father's corny jokes. Home, home. Years ago, I was in Ohio. I went back to Bonneview. I laughed when I saw what was our backyard, how it has shrunk in size from what it seemed way back then. Our childhood home is just a house now, owned by someone else. I couldn't live there again, and I wouldn't want to. Home, home only exists in memory. Those years when we lived in Bonneview, if I had asked my mother where home was, without a moment's pause, she would have said, Letterkenny, where her parents, sister and brothers lived. That split of emotions that she, as an immigrant, held, loving their life in America, but missing home with every pulse beat. Home, home. If you asked my husband where home, home is for him, he would say, Lower Main Street, Letterkenny. There, lying in bed in their attic room that he shared with three brothers, listening to the rain hitting off the roof and the sound of show band music wafting from the old Devlin dance hall, the pull and push, warmth and tumble of a large family, calling, where's Mammy, when they landed home from school, if she wasn't near the door. For my father, who lives happily in Galway, home home would be Skull, West Cork. The time he spent at the pier with his friends, as they tried to climb in and out of random boats. The town that he hasn't lived in since he was 16 years old. But still, when he talks to his beloved sister, he goes up the street and down again in memory, naming every shop and building from all those years ago. For my grandmother, my mother's mother, in her later years, she tried to go to her home home in the middle of the night, she would rise out of her bed in Letterkenny and say that she had to get to Burton Port. She thought her mother was waiting for her at the pier. They needed to board a boat while the tide was still high so they could safely go across to their home on Rutland Island. And yet, she hadn't lived there in over 50 years. For me, home home is not an emotion of missing or homesickness for the place, but the holding of warm memories from a time before our family knew loss. I wonder what our sons who are grown men now would think. I remember with each of them the jolt to my being when they first would say, I must go home, as they headed away to their new place. What is home home to them now? The smells, tastes, 
sounds are our family traditions and memories. I hope they cherish them. If you are lucky, if the fates have been kind, home-home is the blending of people, emotions and memories within a feeling of being sheltered. I know I can't go back to live in our childhood home. I'm just grateful that it's part of my being. Grateful that I can hold it jewel bright in remembrance. I just dropped in to see you all. I'll only stay a while. On a recent holiday in the United States, I visited a 19th century house in Hartford, Connecticut. The guide talked about the owner of this lavish home, one Sam Clemens, an author, inventor and family man. Our guide also mentioned that on a previous tour, a visitor had remarked, Who is this guy Sam you keep mentioning? I thought we were in Mark Twain's house. Samuel Langhorne Clemens was born in Missouri in 1835, but when he started writing in earnest in his 30s, he adopted the pseudonym Mark Twain. Clemens used different names before deciding on Mark Twain. He signed imaginative sketches as Josh and as Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass for a series of humorous letters. He maintained that his primary pen name came from his years working on Mississippi riverboats. Twain is an archaic term for two, as in the phrase, never the twain shall meet, and Sam Clemens had heard boatmen on the river shout, Mark, Twain, meaning that the depth of the river was two fathoms and therefore safe to pass. As I walked around the Mark Twain house, admiring the hand-stenciled wood panelling, embossed wallpaper and carved wooden furniture in this magnificent Victorian Gothic Revival building, I mused that the income of a writer in 19th century America must have been a good one. I was impressed, until the guide told us that the house had been built before Clemens had made any money from his books, but rather had been supported by his wife Olivia's inheritance. So he had married money. The Clemens family moved into the home in 1874 after its completion. They imported furniture from France, which was fashionable at the time, and much of the interior was decorated in a way that would impress friends. Indeed, among their acquaintances were several authors of note, such as their neighbour Harriet Beecher Stowe and President Ulysses Grant, with whom Sam collaborated in publishing a memoir. The top floor was the billiards room and Sam's private study, where he would write late at night. The room was strictly off-limits to all but the cleaning staff. It was also used for entertaining male guests with cigars and alcohol. Mrs Clemens tutored their three daughters in a room on the second floor before they would move on to high school in the community. The girl's father, now steadily becoming a well-known author, would play with them in the plant-filled conservatory, pretending to be an elephant in an imaginary safari. 
Clemens at this stage was engrossed in writing his adventure stories, set along the Mississippi. And it would appear that he had a sense of mischievousness, similar to his characters. Sam had grown up in Hannibal, Missouri, the town that would provide the inspiration for St. Petersburg in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. The success of Tom Sawyer inspired him to renovate the house and he employed the well-known New York designer, Louis Tiffany, to supervise the interior decoration. He was also fascinated with new technologies, leading to the installation of an early telephone. All would seem to have been going well for the Clemens, with Sam a successful author, Olivia a wealthy woman, and the three girls growing up happy and well-educated. But darker times were ahead. Sam, a former printer, invested in the development of a typesetting machine, which was intended to make him a fortune, while advancing the lot of printers in America. The machine, called a Page Compositor, after its inventor James Page, was complex and expensive, and as an invention was a complete failure, leading to Sam's bankruptcy. Meanwhile, the loves of his life succumbed to illness. First his eldest, Susie, died, then his beloved wife, Olivia, and some years later, his youngest, Jean, leaving Sam with his only surviving daughter, Clara. Sam Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, died in 1910, having declared himself bankrupt several years earlier. I left the house in Hartford with the thought of how one's life's fortunes can rise and fall like a river. A week later, I was in St. Genevieve, Missouri. Standing on the bank of the Mississippi, looking across at Illinois, I wondered how I could have the experience of travelling on the river when I didn't have any business on the other side. The ferryman noticed my curiosity. I'll take you across for two dollars, he shouted. In the ferry cabin, I asked him about Twain's and Mark's. You know, this thing helps me calculate everything, he said pointing to the electronic controls on his John Deere boat. I know river's going to rise six feet in the next six hours. Now, wouldn't Sam Clemens just love this invention? There's an old man called Mississippi That's the old man that I'd like to be What does he care if the world's got troubles? What does he care if the land ain't free? Old Man River, that old man river, he must know something, but don't say nothing. In the early 1980s, a new American television series called Hill Street Blues hit Irish TV screens. It was a police drama unlike anything we'd seen before. Set in the fictional precinct of Hill Street, in a gritty, deprived part of an unnamed American city, Chicago, Pittsburgh, New York, the station's chaos was conveyed by documentary-style filming, often with handheld cameras. That was new. The nature of friendship was a strong theme in the show, as were questions of right and wrong. There were storylines around infidelity and topical issues like AIDS and drugs. Not every storyline would be resolved at the end of one episode. Some would carry on into the next one and the next. That too 
was new. At the series' heart was the large cast of brilliant characters whose personal and professional struggles were played out with delicacy and nuance. I had three favourites. Undercover cop Belker, who looked dodgier than any gang member and literally barked and growled like a dog at suspects. Debonair divorced Staff Sergeant Phil Esterhouse, whose amorous exploits were legion. He began each episode with a roll call of Hill Street's cops and an outline of what might come up that day, before warning his crew, and hey, let's be careful out there, before the opening credits rolled. And the man in charge of them all, Captain Frank Ferrillo, always impeccably dressed in a three-piece suit. Ferrillo, played by Daniel J. Trevanti, held the station together, supporting his cops but reining them in when they went too far. He negotiated truces between the gangs and struggled with the city's bureaucracy and politics. His private life was equally challenging. He had an ever-demanding ex-wife and a new relationship with defence attorney Joyce Davenport, whose job was to defend the very people Ferrillo was trying to convict. Episodes frequently ended with these two in bed or in the bath, talking about the day's events. Hill Street was groundbreaking and widely regarded as paving the way for shows like The Sopranos, The West Wing, Mad Men and Breaking Bad. It was compelling, and for the teenager that I was, unmissable. Sometimes I'd watch it with my mother, who'd grown up on the shores of Lake Michigan between Chicago and Milwaukee. And when I did, she'd always remark that she knew the actor who played Captain Ferrillo, Daniel J. Trevanti. They'd both gone to Mary D. Bradford High School in her hometown of Kenosha, she said. Daniel had had a part-time job delivering fruit and vegetables to their house, she told me one night. She sometimes rewrote Daniel's English essays for him, as her handwriting was better than his, she boasted. And once, she casually mentioned, Daniel had even stolen a kiss from her. I was highly sceptical about all this bearing in mind my mother's firmly held belief in the existence of angels and conspiracy theories that could fill volumes. And as in those pre-internet days the Travanti connection was impossible to either prove or refute, it was left as unresolved as a storyline at the end of a Hill Street episode. When, a few years later, Travanti appeared on Terry Wogan's chat show on the BBC, I listened to my mother phone London and leave a message for him. If he was coming to Dublin, she'd love to see him. Now, surely I'd find out if there was any substance behind these stories. But the reply that eventually came from the Beeb neither confirmed nor denied any acquaintance. Mr Trevanti didn't have time to go to Dublin. Maybe next time. Hmm. However, over a decade later, the story was finally resolved when my mother returned to America for the first time in many years. In the meantime, she had written to Trevanti. And on this trip, she didn't just meet up with him. She was invited to stay at his house. She returned, quietly triumphant, with a photograph of him on which he had written, Dear Mary, you are my June Allison, Daniel J. Travanti. My mother was his June Allison, the 1950s American movie star known for playing the girl next door, similar to Doris Day. I admitted defeat, but was sincerely impressed. But that wasn't all. 
The following year, in 2003, came the final episode of this story when Travanti came to Ireland for a holiday and to see my mother. And during this visit, Captain Farillo of Hill Street Blues visited me, my wife and two small children. I will never forget the sight of a grey-haired Captain Farillo sitting in our tiny living room. Initially, conversation was stilted. I mean, what do you say to Captain Farillo? After chatting for a while, we went for a walk to Joyce's Tower. I asked him about Hill Street and then about his and my family. Travanti confirmed most of my mother's recollections, as well as adding extra details about the connection between our families, particularly regarding my grandfather, John McAvoy. My grandfather was a Kenosha lawyer who'd handled the Travanti family's immigration from Italy to America and remained the family lawyer for many years. According to the person who was then transforming from Captain Ferrillo to Dan, his father said that if he ever had any problem, Mr McAvoy would sort it. But the funny thing was, Dan was taking as much interest in me as I was in him. He seemed to take genuine pleasure in meeting the son of his childhood friend, if not sweetheart, and asked about my writing, my work and my family as we walked. And as we near Sandy Cove, I watched a car drive towards us and the driver literally do a double take, mouth falling wide open, head turning as he passed, staring at the person walking beside me. It was as if he couldn't believe what his eyes were telling him. There was Daniel J. Travanti. There was Captain Ferrillo. And though I was walking along with him, I hardly believed it myself. But it was true. On Broadway, progress is your bus door, corner of People's Drive and 124th Street. Saoirse Ronan's performance in the movie Brooklyn is mesmerising. As her character leaves Enniscorty for the promise of New York and the American dream, we journey with her through an emotional labyrinth of hope and heartbreak, of love and loss, of regret and ultimately of resolution. Emigration is a cultural harmonic that resonates through the generations. We Irish understand this well, we all have been touched by some version of the Brooklyn story. My own grand-aunt Joanna Ryan was born in November 1894 in Bournechurch in the barony of Slivarda, close to the village of Killinall, County Tipperary. She was one of 11 children to tenant farmers who leased land from the Hemp Hills of Spring Hill House, a prominent local Presbyterian family. Their small holding overlooked the ruins of Gracetown Castle, built by the Norman Raymond Le Gros in 1170. It bordered the townland of Lurgo, where the magnificent ecclesiastical treasure, the Derinaflan Chalice, would be discovered in 1980. Joanna was baptised in St Mary's Church in Killinall, which would later be graced with a pulpit carved by the 1916 martyr Willie Pierce. 
When Joanna first mooted the idea of travelling to America and a new future, her widowed mother's instinct to keep her youngest daughter close slowly gave way to a deeper love, releasing her to the hope and possibility of a better life. I like to imagine the American wake for Joanna and her friend Ellen Slattery, who would make the trip with her. Bottles of stout and white clay pipes ordered from McCormick's in Killinall. The abrasive firebrand parish priest, the Reverend David Humphreys, stopping by to warn about the godlessness that awaited 20-year-old girls in the new world. In the morning, Joanna places all of her belongings into a portmanteau, packing a cake of brown bread and hard-boiled eggs to sustain her during the week-long sailing to New York. She hugs her mother for the last time. They hold each other tightly in the doorway of the cottage with tears and kisses before Joanna tears herself away, running up the Boreen towards the train station at Laffins Bridge. Her brothers carry their sister's luggage, promising to follow her to America one day. Her youngest brother, my grandfather Patrick, would keep that promise. But by then, Joanna was dead. Travelling to America in 1914 for anyone, let alone a young girl who had never set foot outside of her parish, was a tremendous undertaking. Only three years previously, the unsinkable Titanic had gone down off Newfoundland on the same route. Joanna, clearly an adventurous soul, boarded the White Star Line's RMS Celtic in Queenstown, arriving in Ellis Island on the 9th of October 1914, as the world was going to war. At that time, emigration to America seemed to be for keeps. Unlike for Saoirse Ronan's character in Brooklyn, there was no returning home, no opportunity to re-evaluate her choices. Joanna would live out her short life for her family solely through the pages of occasional letters and parcels, none of which survive today. We don't know what she looked like. There are no photographs. The ship's manifest records that she was five foot five with brown hair and blue eyes. She was destined for a Miss Kennedy with an address on 24th East and 3rd Street, New York. Family tradition holds that she married a Mr Tarrant, had two children, died sometime in the early 1920s, with Tarrant reportedly marrying the bridesmaid from his marriage to Joanna. From these simple facts, we could speculate the who, what and why of her life. But the truth is, we simply don't know. Marriage certs, birth certs, death certs, even a grave must exist. But for now, they remain stubbornly resistant to my genealogical searching. The thing that is special about this short life story is nothing and everything. There is mystery, an unknown legacy, a lost family story. Discovering it and telling Joanna's story is unlikely to change our world, but I believe it is important to know it, to return the missing part of her to family remembrance. And who knows? Perhaps there is that genealogical treasure waiting to be discovered somewhere in Brooklyn. A familiar face with brown hair and blue eyes. 
four generations arrived from Barnchurch, living the American dream. Vacation time. No school tomorrow, said the girl at the end of our line, as we stood in the playground at Lincoln Elementary, Ohio, our uniforms itchy in June humidity. And no school the next day, joined another and another. And with that, I caught their excitement. Or the next day, or the next day, or the next day. Summer lay ahead, Swimming in Lakewood Pool, picnics in the park, July 4th, fireworks, my birthday, roasting marshmallows over campfires, catching lightning bugs in jars. Just as my mind began to climb into a rowboat at summer camp, Chuck, the ever-grim, spoke. But days after that, we're back at school. Second grade. Mrs. Palermo, with that sombre hatchet chop, fell my first lesson in time passing. On this morning's mix of new and archive scripts, we heard Bob Shepherd, Voice of the Yankees by Jonathan White. Home Home was by Denise Blake. The Adventures of Mark Twain by Nolig Rowan. My Mother and Daniel J. Travanti was by Tim Carey. My Brooklyn Story was by Tom Ryan and Vacation Time, a poem also by Denise Blake. The music was God Bless America, sung by Ronan Tynan and introduced by Bob Shepard. The Homes of Donegal by Paul Brady, which was written by Sean McBride. Old Man River, sung by Paul Robeson. The theme to Hill Street Blues, composed by Mike's, Mike Post. And Si Tu Vois Ma Mère by Sidney Bachet. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And for more on other RTE arts and culture programmes, take a look at rte.ie slash culture. And for more on this programme, go to rte.ie slash radio one slash Sunday Miscellany. RTE Radio 1. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.